0: Our first reading today is from Acts, chapter 16, verses 16 to 24, Paul and Silas in prison. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned round and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realised their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they are throwing their city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks."
1: Our reading continues, Acts sixteen, continuing on, twenty-five, verses twenty-five to forty. Paul and Silas are now in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men! The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison, and now do they want to get rid of us so quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to them and appeased them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison... They went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Thanks be to God for his word.
2: People's experience of being in prison varies vastly. Rolf Harris upset a lot of people the other week when he said in a letter he was writing a song about his accusers and added, "'Prison is no hardship, really.' I'm in the art room as an assistant to the tutor, and basically I'm doing what I like. A lot of people were deeply unhappy at that. For him, prison has not been such a bad experience. On the other hand, in the news this week has been the question about whether Tadmur, the prison that was demolished by IS in Syria, was the worst prison the world has ever known. The appalling treatment Uh, given to prisoners there, the utter despair and degradation they were subjected to and the vulnerability of their lives. In terms of the spectrum of what prison could be like, Paul and Silas' experience I suspect was a bit more in the direction of Tadmour than in the direction of Rolf Rolf Harris' experience. Ancient jails were not renowned for their humane treatment of prisoners. The Greek historian Diodorus Siculus describes one prison as a deep underground dungeon, no larger than a nine-couch room and noisome from the large numbers incarcerated there. With so many shut up at close quarters, the poor wretches were reduced to the appearance of physical brutes, and since their food and everything pertaining to their needs was all foully commingled, a stench so terrible assailed anyone who drew near that it could scarcely be endured." There's no reason to suppose that the prison where Paul and Silas were locked up was so very different. They were put in the inner cell, which was probably underground, and their feet were fastened in the stocks, an added security measure that we used at night time. And the usual practice was to force the legs of someone in the stocks as far apart as possible to minimise discomfort. And bear in mind that they had been severely beaten the day before with rods. Their wounds had not been washed or treated in any way, So either they had to sit upright or or lie down on the floor or rest their backs against the wall. The pain must have been excruciating. And it's possible that in this jail the practice was followed of herding all the prisoners into the innermost cell overnight and securing them with a single length of chain through the fetters. That would explain why Paul could say to the Philippian jailer, none of the prisoners have escaped after the earthquake because they were all together crowded in the one cell. If that were the case, the conditions would have been well nigh unbearable. The satirist Lucian describes prisoners being bound hand and foot at night time and records how the stench and the closeness of the dungeon in which so many prisoners were huddled together gasping for breath and the difficulty of getting any sleep owing to the clanking of chains all combined to make the situation intolerable. Not much chance of sleep for Paul and Silas that night then. So they spent the night praying and singing hymns and I guess that would have kept the other prisoners awake if nothing else did. There's nothing they could do about it they're all together. They just had to listen. And it certainly would have made a change for the other prisoners from the cursing, the shouting and the groaning and the clanking of chains that normally would have kept them awake at night. 150 years later, the Christian apologist Tertullio would bravely assert that the leg doesn't feel the chain while the mind is in the heavens. Well, I guess Paul and Silas will have tested that out that particular night in prison. And then at about midnight... Luke tells us that there was a sudden earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison, opening all the doors and loosening everyone's chains. But rather than this being the cause of a mass breakout from the jail, the earthquake resulted in the joyful conversion of the jailer and his family. Joyful. Joy. I wonder how much joy that man had experienced before that night. He may have taken a perverse pleasure in the maltreatment of his victims, a certain amount of pride in his work, but the infliction of suffering on other people is not likely to bring the kind of joy that filled his heart when he found Christ that night. His own readiness to take his life when he thought the prisoners might have escaped suggests that fear rather than joy tended to dominate his mind and his heart. What kind of man would this jailer have been? He may have been a retired soldier, in which case the old are that he would have taken an especial satisfaction in making Paul and Silas' experience of jail as unpleasant as possible. Roman soldiers didn't like Jews, because Palestine was such an unpleasant and troublesome posting for them. It had a real reputation, the one place in the empire you didn't want to go. And he would have known that Paul and Silas were in prison really just as a result of prejudice and anti-Jewish sentiment. That is a prejudice that he would have shared to the hilt and would have been glad to express in his treatment of them. He would have been racially prejudiced against Jews and would have taken that out on Paul and Silas in prison. The other possibility was that he was a civic slave. That would have accounted for his readiness to take his own life when he thought the prisoners might have escaped, since he knew that if that happened, nothing else awaited him but certain torture and death. But retired Roman soldier or Slavic slave, what kind of person would this man have been? Would he have been an upright member of society, respected and honoured by everybody? Unlikely. The Jewish writer Philo, who lived during this period, provides us with a description of the typical jailer. He says, Of the cruelty and inhumanity of which jailers are full, there is no one who is ignorant. For they are both by nature pitiless and also by constant practice they are made more and more brutal and increase in ferocity day by day, never seeing or saying or doing any good thing, but committing only acts of violence and barbarity. For as men who have very strongly knit bodies, when besides their natural strength, they add to it the practice of wrestlers become stronger still and acquire an irresistible power and a surpassing perfection of body, So, in the same manner, when an untamable and implacable nature adds habit to its natural ferocity, it becomes inaccessible to and immovable by any kind of pity or any single respectable or humane feeling. And as those who associate with good men are improved in their disposition by such association, rejoicing in the pleasant and good persons with whom they are living, so also do they who are living with the wicked take the impression of their wicked ways. For habit is a very powerful thing to put a force upon nature and make it resemble itself. Now, keepers of prisons live among thieves and robbers and housebreakers and men of insolence and violence and murderers and adulterers and plunderers of temples from every one of whom they contract some wickedness and collect a sort of contribution. And from their manifold mixture make up one thoroughly confused and wholly polluted iniquity. It's what jailers were like in those days. And this, this is the kind of man who asked Paul and Silas that night what he had to do to be saved. This wasn't one of the good guys. This was one of the dregs of society. This was somebody who would have been feared because of the power he exercised. This was someone who cared nothing for other people whatsoever. But as such a man, the question was put What must I do? What must I do to be saved? It's an understandable question from someone who's lived a bad life, from someone who's looked death in the face and found that they've been given a second chance. When he thought the prisoners had escaped, the jailer thought it was all over for him. He was ready to take his own life rather than suffering the kind of treatment he'd inflicted on others. But having spared death or torture and death, maybe he realised that he couldn't carry on living life the way he had up until that moment in time. His life had been given back to him. It was a second chance. He didn't want to be the same person as he had been. What must I do to be saved? Maybe he recognized that the earthquake had been caused by God. And since he knew that Paul and Silas were Jews, and no doubt he'd heard them singing with everybody else, he was in no doubt that it was their God who was responsible. How would their God treat him after he had inflicted such pain upon them and taken such a perverse delight in doing so? How can I be saved? After I've offended your God. And it's likely that the whole town knew that Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High, and they'd been going around telling people how they could be saved because the servant girl had been speaking about that for days. He knew then that if anybody could tell him how to be saved, these men could. And that night, for whatever reason, the jailer knew that he was a man in need of salvation. And these were the men who could tell him what he had to do to be saved. What's it mean to be saved anyway? The Philippian jailer was a man who knew that his life was going in the one direction. When he stopped to think about it at all, he knew he was heading for hell. This provided an opportunity to change direction, to change the way he was living, to change his destination. What must I do to be saved? Only the power of God could turn his life around, change him on the inside, make a difference to such a violent and cruel person. But it's not just violent and cruel people who need saving. Sometimes we might feel that our life is a waste of time, that we're worth nothing more than worthless rubbish, fit only to be thrown away. In such cases, God declares, no, you, whatever you feel about yourself, you are worth saving because I gave my son for you to rescue your life. Sometimes the best of us end up saying and doing things we know we shouldn't, that we know we don't want to, that we feels like we've lost touch with who we really are, we've lost control of who we want to be. God is the one who can save us from that. Sometimes we look back and we see nothing but failure. We look forwards and see nothing but despair. God is the one who can rescue us from our past and make something of our future. Sometimes we can feel as if nobody cares or bothers about us at all, but the God who sent his son into the world for you declares that that is not the case. He loves you and you matter to him. So lots of us, apart from the Philippian jailer, at one point or another, might find ourselves asking the same question as he did. What must I do to be saved? What can change my life? What can turn my life around? What can make my life of value or importance? And the answer in each case is believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Because that's what being a Christian is all about, believing in Jesus. Putting it bluntly, if you don't believe in Jesus, then no way that you're a Christian, no matter what ceremony may have been performed in church for you when you were a baby. Believing in Jesus is what makes you a Christian. Believing in Jesus is what saves us. And what does believing in Jesus mean? It means believing that the Son of God gave his life to give you life. That he took all your failure, shame and guilt upon himself when he died on the cross and as risen Lord he releases God's love forgiveness grace and power into your life and that as Lord he can take your life in a different direction and by entrusting your life into his hands your eternal destiny is secure he's the one the only one who saves us from sin who saves us from death who saves us from hell Who saves us from our past, who saves us from ourselves and who rescues us for God and for salvation and for eternal life. That's the message that the Philippian jailer heard that night with his household and then and there they believed and were baptised. And he performed his first act of kindness, washing the wounds of Paul and Silas. Philo said of jailers, they never saw or said or did did any good thing. They were immovable by any kind of pity or any single respect or humane feeling. That man changed that night, for the first time, to perform an act of kindness and generosity and goodness to a fellow human being, inviting Paul and Silas into his home, washing their wounds, giving them something to eat his salvation made him a different person and he started to live life a different way. He changed on the inside. Chrysostom said that as he washed the wounds that Paul and Silas had suffered, he washed them and was washed himself. He washed them from their stripes and he himself was washed from his sins when he was baptised. Baptism represents being made clean. It represents being released from the past. It represents being empowered to live a new life with Christ in charge. It's Dying with Christ of the past, being raised with Christ to live life a new way with Jesus as our new manager. Getting baptized shows that you mean business when it comes to believing in Jesus. And if you're serious about the need to be saved, you need to be serious about making a commitment to the one who saves you. Believing in Jesus and getting baptised as an expression of that belief. Baptism is for those who are prepared to hand the keys of their heart over to God and to declare Jesus is Lord. Baptism is for anyone and everyone here who knows that they need salvation. Because Christianity isn't a religion for good people. It's salvation for those who know they need it through faith in Jesus expressed in baptism and as the example of the Philippian jailer shows us with crystal clarity there is no one who is so far away from God that they can't be saved it's never too late for anybody to be saved there's no one whose past or character rules them out from being saved there is no one no one whom Jesus will ever turn away and there is no one who doesn't need to put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour and get baptised as a declaration of that commitment. The Philippian jailer and his family wasted no time. They were baptised that very night. How long have you been thinking about this? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The message is as true and as powerful and as effective in Horsham in the 21st century as it was in Philippi that night. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Here and now we give expression to that belief in eating the bread and drinking the wine, believing that Jesus died for us. Receive the bread because it's a sign that Jesus' body was broken for you so that you could be forgiven. Receive the wine which is a sign that his blood was shed for you to make an agreement between yourself and God that you belong to him and he belongs to you and he will keep you for eternal life. If you believe that Jesus died for you to save you, you can express that this morning by eating the bread and wine. Another day, you can express it by being baptised as a sign of his cleansing, of his release from the past and of his lordship over your life. And if that's a step that you feel God is calling you to, have a word with me or with Jack or with somebody else who you know and trust in this church and if you take one thing away with you this morning it's that simple message that Paul declared to the Philippian jailer and which God declares to you believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved whoever you are whatever you've done it's true for you